So the Haftarah for today is from the book of Zechariah, chapter 2. In our division of the verses, it's verses 10 through chapter 4, verse 7. Um, the Jewish division of verses differs from the one that we commonly use in a few places. And one of those is in the book of Zechariah, where the parasha for, sorry, where the Haftarah uh, is written as starting at verse 14, um, which really confused me when I went to go see what Zechariah 2, 14 to 4, 7 says and realized that Zechariah only has 13 verses. Um, so Zechariah 2.10 is the same as Zechariah 2.14 in the Jewish division of verses. Uh -huh. so, yeah, so for anyone who's confused, if you look in your Bibles, it will be Zechariah 2.10 through uh, 4.7. Um, and so the, usually the Haftarah is chosen because of its relationship with the parasha for the week. Um, if you're new to this study and to Judaism, um, <laughs> but the parasha is a weekly portion of Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, that is read in Jewish synagogues throughout the year. It covers the entire Torah in a year. It's usually four or five chapters of the Bible in a week, um, and it's always from the Torah. There is then also the Haftarah, which is a section from the rest of the Old Testament, the prophets and the writings, um, which is chosen usually to accompany the parasha. So they have the parasha from the Torah, and then they go pick something from one of the prophets or kings or one of the historical books of the Bible that relates to the parasha. However, that's not the case this week. Um, this week, the Haftarah was chosen not for its relationship to the parasha, but instead for its relationship to the festival of Hanukkah. Um, so we're celebrating Hanukkah right now here in Israel. There's donuts everywhere. It's a wonderful time to be in the country. So many free donuts at all sorts of different events. Um, you you will gain weight during Hanukkah. <laughs> um, and one of the ways that Hanukkah is celebrated is with the lighting of a menorah which has one central candle and then eight candles on the sides. Sorry, a Hanukkiah. A menorah um, has typically seven candles. Uh, a Hanukkiah looks like a menorah, but has those nine candles. And so the center candle is always lit and they go through and light the other eight candles on each of the eight nights of Hanukkah. And so by the end, you have a full Hanukkiah in the window of every home. Uh, and the night is filled with light and you know that there's a holiday going on. The story behind Hanukkah um, that is typically told is that during the period of the Maccabees, uh, which was before Christ, but after the end of the Old Testament, in the intertestamental period, when the Jews were rebelling against the Greeks and taking back control of the Holy Land of the Temple, um, there was a menorah that burned for eight days without any ink being added, and it was a miracle. However, this story is not actually in the chron the books of first and second or first, second, third, and fourth, depending how you divide it up, Maccabees. Um, this is found only in the Talmud, which was written much later. Um, and so a lot of scholars think it may not be authentic. Um, of course, there's always debate over that, as with anything religious, but um, as with anything actually scholarly. <laughs> um, and in fact... Um, it has been suggested that the reason Hanukkah is eight days is not because the candle burned for eight days, but rather because during the year preceding Hanukkah, the Jews were unable to celebrate Sukkot, a typical eight-day festival. And so they made up for that uh, when they celebrated Hanukkah, when they were able to reclaim the temple. 
But at any rate, Hanukkah is associated with Hanukkiahs, and which are very similar to menorahs. And this passage this week includes a prophetic vision of a menorah. And so that's why it was chosen. Uh, specifically, it's a menorah that fills itself with oil. So it really relates well to the historical Hanukkah story of a menorah that burns without any extra oil being added. And so in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 7, we have two visions and one encouragement, um, which is what each of those three chapters we're covering contains. Um, the book of Zechariah was written during the post-exilic period. So if you're familiar with the history of the nation of Israel, um, they, during their time in the land, sinned greatly against God, and he sent them into exile, first the northern nation of Israel, then the southern nation of Judah, where we're focusing, under the Babylonians, where they were in exile almost 60 years, almost 70 years, 70 if you round it, um, and then they were first allowed to return to the land under um, King Cyrus of Persia when the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And so during the time when the Jews first began returning to the land was a, a very complicated time of very slow starts, slow beginnings, grand dreams, and very little, little bits of progress that were very messy um, and often had false starts and stops and all sorts of problems, neighbors causing hassles, bureaucratic challenges, um, all sorts of things. It um, could easily have been discouraging. But the prophet Zechariah speaks into this time a message of hope and encouragement in small things, small bits of progress for the Lord um, and faithfulness in what he is doing. I'm going to start with a bit of background in the sort of history of the book and some of the characters that are discussed in the section that we'll read today, and then we'll go ahead and read the text. Then I'll share some insights into this text from modern and historic Jewish thought, and then share some interpretations of what this text meant to its original hearers and the encouragement it can offer us today that it offered to its first hearers. And finally, we'll end with some messianic prophecies. Uh, in this specific text, looking at Jesus in the Old Testament in these chapters from Zechariah. So it should be a fun time. We'll start with the background and some of the most important figures of this post-exilic period. Um, so when the Jews were first allowed to return to the land of Israel under King Cyrus, they were led by Zerubbabel, a political leader, governor, not really a king, but sort of had some sort of political administrative authority over Jerusalem. Um, his name literally means seed of Babylon, which shows how much his family had integrated into the political, social, cultural structures of Babylon where they were living in exile. And yet even being so Babylonian, so acclimated to Babylonian society and culture as to have a name literally meaning seed of Babylon, he still stood up as a faithful Israelite, um, determined to return to the land and rebuild the temple as soon as possible. And Zerubbabel led the first group of exiles, some 42,000 that returned to the land. Accompanying him was Joshua, the high priest. Um, so Zerubbabel was the political leader. Joshua was the spiritual leader. Um, and he helped restore temple worship and care for the people spiritually. So these two men led the first group of exiles. 
They arrived in the land around 538 BC, but it was another 16 years or so before they were able to start rebuilding the temple. And they began rebuilding the temple during the reign of Darius, who succeeded um, Cyrus as king of Persia. And Haggai was a prophet who began prophesying in the land of Judah right before they began building the temple. He commanded and exhorted the Israelites to begin the process of rebuilding the temple, and they did. Um, and Zechariah began prophesying soon after Haggai, within a couple months or a year, encouraging the Israelites in their process of rebuilding the temple. They may each have prophesied before this, but their first recorded prophecy that we have in our uh, in the books that bear their names come from right around the beginning of the restoration of the temple in around 520 BC. Now, the book of Zechariah is... 12 chapters i'm pretty short <laughs> um and it contains the most visions the most angels and the most messianic prophecies of any book of prophecy in the old testament per chapter isaiah might have more messianic prophecies but it's a much longer book uh, per chapter zechariah has the most visions um, where god does not just speak but shows him an image or a picture or a symbol with a meaning he has the most angels. There's the angel of the Lord. There's Satan makes an appearance in the bit that we'll be reading. Um, there's other assorted angels um, speaking to him, revealing the prophecies, explaining the prophecies, carrying him in the spirit to places to see things. Um, Zechariah actually exerts a very heavy influence on the book of Revelation. So if you want to properly understand the book of Revelation, you should read Zechariah and really read the entire Old Testament um, because Revelation of all the books in the New Testament has the most allusions and references to the Old Testament. So many of the images that we see in Revelation that are so confusing have already appeared in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, the four horsemen appear in Zechariah chapter six. So if you want to understand what the four horsemen of the apocalypse are meant to represent, what are they symbols of and how ought we to interpret them? You should definitely read Zechariah chapter six and ask, what do these horsemen mean in this vision, in this context, in this message that Zechariah is giving to this people? And how does the author of Revelation interact with that image as he repurposes it to communicate a new truth uh, at the time of the writing of Revelation? But this is not a sermon about the book of Revelation. <laughs> um, this is a Bible study about the book of Zechariah 2.10 to 4.7. And so let's dive in and go ahead and read this text. Zechariah 2.10 to 13. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Chapter 3 Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. 
Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And in that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and your fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. And in chapter four, we get to the menorah that has this reading chosen for us. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up, like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. So we have here three sections. <laughs> Um, an encouragement to the exiles to rejoice as they return to Jerusalem because God himself will dwell there with them and bring many nations to join them. A description of Joshua standing before the Lord, accused by Satan, wearing sinful, filthy clothes, being rid of his filthy, sinful clothes and clothed in new fine turban and receiving a promise of a future and a future servant, the branch. And a picture of a menorah that fills itself <laughs> Um, and an encouragement that the Lord's work will be done not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. So now let's explore some of what Jewish people, ancient and modern, have had to say about this. Um, I'm going to begin with a reading from the Talmud, which adds a story to that of Joshua to interpret what exactly is meant um, when it says that he is like a stick, burning stick plucked from the fire. Um, and this Talmudic story takes place in the land of Babylon under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and refers to two false prophets, Achav and Sidkiyahu, which are the Hebrew pronunciations of Ahab and Zedekiah, uh, if you've heard those names before, but no relation to anyone in the Bible. These are two characters who are false prophets, um, and this story dates from much, much later. It's authenticity, you can argue about. Um, but it's a very interesting depiction of Joshua. Describing these two servants, asked, what did they do? They went to Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. Achav said to her, so said God, give yourself unto Tzidkiyahu. While Tzidkiyahu said to her, so said God, surrender to Achav. So she went and told her father, who said to her, the God of these people hates unchastity. When they again approach you, send them to me. So when they came to her, she referred them to her father. Who told this to you? He asked of them. 
The Holy One, blessed be he, replied they. But I have inquired of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who informed me that it is forbidden. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, if you've heard of them before. Those are their Babylonian names. These are their Hebrew names, the ones that survived the burning furnace in the book of Daniel. They answered, we too are prophets, just as they are. To them he did not say it, but to us he did. Then I desire that you be tested, just as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were, the king retorted. But they were three. Well, we are only two, they protested. Then choose whom you wish to accompany you, he said. Joshua the high priest, they answered, thinking, let Joshua be brought, for his merit is great, and God may protect us. So he was brought, and they were all thrown into the furnace. They were burned, but as to Joshua the high priest, only his garments were singed. So in this story, we see Joshua as a burning stick snatched from the fire, quite literally, in the style of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. <laughs> Um, and so many Jewish interpreters point at this to say this is the meaning of the verse where the Lord says, is not this one a burning stick snatched from the fire? Um, an additional Jewish source, the Targum, which is an Aramaic paraphrase, very, very loose paraphrase of the Old Testament, adds even more information about Joshua, claiming that the filth of his robes represented the fact that his wives, that his sons had married wives who were not Israelites. Um, they had married idol worshippers from the surrounding people, which was a great sin in the eyes of the Lord. And so when Joshua is cleansed of his filthy clothes and given a robe of righteousness, this represents his sons divorcing their bad wives and marrying good Israelite wives. Um, this is one stream of interpretation in Jewish thought. It's really interesting, um, and I hope it also gives us a window into all the the many ways that the stories of the Old Testament are taken in different religious traditions and fleshed out, um, details added, explanations brought, interpretations canonized, um, as we see this, this stream of additional interpretation and understanding added. Um, these interpretations all look at Zechariah chapter 3 as being about Joshua as an individual. Joshua himself, the singular human being who was snatched from the fire, who's had sons who married wrong wives, who was instated by the Lord to lead the people. But there's another stream of thought, both known in Jewish thought and common in, in Christian interpretation of this passage, which holds that in this passage, Joshua is representing the whole nation of Israel before the Lord. As the high priest, Joshua's job is to represent the people to God and God to the people. So it makes sense to choose him as a metaphorical representation of all the people of Israel in this passage. And in this case, um, when he's referred to as a burning stick snatched from the fire, this is in fact a reference to the people of Israel who have suffered so much in the exile and have only barely been saved by the skin of their teeth and the nape of their neck um, pulled from the fire and restored to the land. And so God is saying to Satan, have not they suffered enough? Have not they been punished enough? Has not their sin been dealt with? And when his filthy clothes are removed and replaced with new clothes of righteousness, this represents the sins of the whole people being forgiven and then being restored to a new relationship with God in the land um, where they can now serve him faithfully without carrying around the guilt and the fear of punishment from the way that all of their ancestors and they themselves have sinned against the Lord. Um, and I think this is an interpretation that can speak 
more dearly perhaps to us today as we can see ourselves joined with all the other people of God um, who did not purify ourselves of our sin, but of whom the Lord removed our sinful rags to put on Christ and gave us Christ's robe of righteousness instead so that we can enter into a relationship with God, not trying to earn salvation, not um, fearing his punishment, but joyfully participating in his work. Um, just as the Israelites joyfully, hopefully, uh, participated in rebuilding the temple, we can also joyfully participate in building the temple of his Holy Spirit, the church here on earth. An additional bit of Jewish interpretation uh, that's interesting to see, it relates to chapter four, the Hanukkah menorah, um, where the, the, the passage directly following what we read, the rest of chapter four, um, Hinsat and Jewish interpretation elaborates um, that these olive trees, in fact, were casting their own olives into the bowl where the olives were pressing themselves and producing their own oil, which then flowed through channels to the lamps uh, so that the lamps could burn without any human labor going into it. And the meaning of this image, the purpose of this metaphor, is summed up in the Lord's phrase to Zechariah, to Zechariah concerning Zerubbabel, where he says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. And in fact, this phrase might be a good summary of the message of the whole book of Zechariah, and especially the section we're reading today. The book of Zechariah is offered as an encouragement for people who are struggling, who do not have might and do not have power. They are a persecuted minority in an empire of the world. Um, and the Lord is showing them that the work of the Lord, the rebuilding of the temple, will go forward, regardless of how much might or power they might have, by his spirit, which is present no matter what it looks like. And I hope we can learn from the book of Zechariah that faithfulness and slow progress in the work of the Lord are just as prophetic and just as powerful as dramatic visions of miracles and destruction and revival and whatever we tend to associate with the prophets um, when we think of them casting huge predictions into the future. Well, Zechariah gives us an example of a prophet who doesn't cast any huge predictions. He says instead, keep doing your slow, steady, simple work of rebuilding this temple. The Lord is at work in this and he will bless your labors. He will prosper them. He will accept them. Um, and he uses some beautiful, powerful visions to communicate this. It's not a lesser or even a less dramatic message um, than we might think to expect. And often God's work <laughs> um, in our lives is in the simple, steady things and encouragement in those um, can look dramatic and cannot. Um, finally, if you know anything about Jewish interpretation, you know they like to ask why. <laughs> why this letter and not that letter? Why is this word included? Why not that one? Why this meaning, detail of the story? Everything has a meaning to be pulled out. And so Yitzi Hurwitz, a uh, Orthodox rabbi in California who writes for Chabad, wrote um, about this passage, Why Olives? Because though olives are bitter, from them comes the oil that produces light. This is a lesson about the exile. Although it is bitter, out of it we produce the greatest light. And so he refers to this, the parable, this image, this vision of the olive trees producing olives that are pressed and produce oil um, as an image of how God is able to take difficult, painful, bitter things and out of them produce the greatest light. He then goes on to compare this to the Holocaust and the way that the Jewish people survived the Holocaust 
And coming out of that, we're able to establish a nation and flourish and rebuild and produce light. Um, he compares the Holocaust and the modern state of Israel to the exile and the return of Jews to the land, um, which makes sense from his perspective, <laughs> for sure. Um I think his reflections on olives and their bitterness and their ability to produce light through oil and candles can hopefully also be an encouragement to us uh, in any seasons of our lives where we may feel like olives having nothing but bitterness inside and being pressed until we burst <laughs> to know that even those seasons, the Lord is able to use to generate something that can shine, uh, to produce a character, a faith, a hope. That um, is able to shine an even brighter light for his kingdom uh, in a world that is often dark. And so to summarize, as we're looking at these three chapters in Zechariah, we see three different messages that he is delivering to the exiles in his day, three ways that he is encouraging him, which hopefully can also encourage us as we hopefully seek to do the work of the Lord, um, building his temple, his church in this world. The first is the encouragement of the forgiveness of sin that he offers to Joshua. Um, he makes sure the people of Israel know that the time for punishment and fear and guilt is past. Their sin has been dealt with, it has been forgiven, and it has been set out of the way before they begin the work of the Lord. So they can rebuild the temple knowing that the Lord approves of them and their labors and will accept worship from this temple once more. And we also ought to be encouraged that our sin has been dealt with long before the Lord invited us to be a part of his work. And so when we seek to serve him and serve this world, we do it from a place of knowing that we are accepted. Our labors will be blessed. He is present in them. Um, we are righteous in his sight. Um, Zechariah also offers to the prophets, or sorry, to the exiles, a beautiful future hope. Um, chapter two in the end there is a depiction strikingly similar to the heavenly city of New Jerusalem that we await at Christ's return, when the Lord will bring people from every tribe, nation, and tongue into Jerusalem and dwell there with them. And he will be our God and we will be his people and he will wipe every tear from our eye and death and mourning will be no more. And there will be no need of sun or moon or lamp because the Lord himself will dwell with his people and will be their light and we will see him face to face and bear his name on our foreheads. This ought to be a beautiful vision of a, a shockingly appealing, desirable end goal to yearn towards, to seek, to be inspired and encouraged by. And Zechariah takes this future vision and then brings it into the current lives of the exiles, which don't really look anything like that, um, and helps them see the threads and the connections and the way that the work that God is doing here and now in this broken world is the same kind of work that he will do when he brings the new heavens and the new earth and completes his restoration of this world. And so we need to have both nearsighted and farsighted vision. We need to be able to look at the present circumstances in front of us and see in them glimmers of the future promise of the coming kingdom of heaven. And when we can connect those two, 
and connect the future hope with the current lived reality that we're experiencing. We find fresh strength and fresh encouragement to serve the Lord, knowing that he is victorious, knowing that what we are doing matters. And to get to my last point, knowing that he is present in the work that we are doing. Um, Zechariah encourages the exiles that their work will be accomplished not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, because the Holy Spirit is present and active uh, in the rebuilding of the temple, whether it looks like it or not. And when we are serving the Lord, when we are doing Bible studies like this, when we are praying for our neighbors, when we are talking to someone about Jesus, when we are volunteering at our church or a soup kitchen, or when we are just simply being kind to the people around us. The Lord's Holy Spirit is present and is at work in those moments. And that ought to give us a fresh joy in doing them, um, to know that we are doing them with the best partner, uh, the best one to work with and work for, um, that we can encounter him in all of the different ways we serve his kingdom. And the picture that I included here for the divine presence, if you can see it, I forgot that a lot of people will join on their cell phones and these PowerPoints will be very small, um, <laughs> is a picture of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit sent flames of fire onto the heads of those who were gathered there. And I chose it specifically because I thought it looked a little bit like a menorah um, with presumably Mary, maybe Mary Magdalene, some woman in the middle um, and three disciples on each side of her with flames on their head lit not by them working really hard or creating a fire but lit by the holy spirit sending fire like the menorah that produces its own olive oil um and uh yeah pentecost is a beautiful fulfillment of that promise that the lord's work will be done not by might nor by power but by my spirit so as we take these messages and these encouragements for our daily lives um, from what the book of Zechariah meant to the daily lives of the exiles, I also want to encourage us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to see where he is found in these verses, um, where the Moshiach, the Ashkenazi pronunciation of the Hebrew word for Messiah, uh, can be seen and foreshadowed. And so we'll start in Zechariah chapter 2, uh, verses 10 to 13. And here uh, we see two different ways in which Jesus's work is, is foreshadowed. One is verse 11, that many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. And we see this fulfilled in Pentecost and in the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, when people from all nations were joined with the Lord, people who were not previously his people became his people and the gates of the kingdom of heaven were thrown wide open to everyone, um, which is beautifully encouraging because most of us would probably not be in the kingdom of heaven if that had not happened. Um, and then the second way in which these verses point us towards Christ is in verse 10, when the Lord declares for I am coming and I will live among you. And then verse 11, when he declares, I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. And this is a little bit confusing because the Lord himself is saying that the Lord has sent him to you, which from a typical Jewish perspective is quite a bit confusing. How can the Lord send the Lord to a people? But of course, if we believe that the Lord God, the Father in heaven, sent the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, to dwell amongst us, uh, then these verses fit perfectly and make so much sense um, as a depiction of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who was sent from the Lord to dwell amongst us. 
And in fact, Yitzi Herwitz, the uh, rabbi in California that I mentioned, closes his uh, read his reflections on this week's Haftarah by quoting the scripture, Behold, I will come and dwell in your midst, which is followed by declares the Lord. And then saying, in other words, Moshiach will come. Just want to say, do you do you hear yourself? Do you recognize what you're saying? That Moshiach is the Lord himself who has declared that he will come and dwell in your midst. Um, and so we have a beautiful reminder that Jesus is the Lord himself who has come to dwell in our midst like he promised he would through the prophets. Moving on to chapter three. Um, we see a prediction of Jesus in this figure known as the branch. Uh, this is sometimes also translated the shoot. Um, the image here, well, I'll go ahead and read what's on the screen first and then describe. So we have the verses 8 and 9 from Zechariah 3, which we've read before, where the Lord speaks to Joshua and says, Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant, the branch, See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. The branch comes up again later in the book of Zechariah in chapter 6, verses 11 to 13, where the Lord, the angel of the Lord speaks to Zechariah and says, Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Josadak. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. Um, so we have here two descriptions of the branch, both of which uh, the Targum interprets as being messianic about not just Joshua the human, but Jesus. Well, the Targum doesn't interpret it as being about Jesus. It's a Jewish source, but the Messiah, whom we know to be Jesus, that comes as the ultimate fulfillment of the branch. And we see very clearly in verse eight that the Lord speaks to Joshua and calls him and his associates men symbolic of things to come. And this is a common pattern we see in Hebrew prophecy, that there is both a partial immediate fulfillment and a future more complete fulfillment of a variety of different prophecies. So here, Zechariah describes a servant who is called a branch. That servant is partially fulfilled in the character of Joshua, the high priest. It says in chapter 6, verse 12, here is the man whose name is the branch, talking about Joshua. But it's not fully fulfilled in Joshua because the Lord calls Joshua himself symbolic of things to come and promises to bring a future servant known as the branch. And so we see that the branch is both Joshua and one to come who is greater than Joshua, the Messiah. We see this often in Hebrew poetry. Um, a partial immediate fulfillment does not rule out um, a much more complete later fulfillment. So what exactly is a branch <laughs> um, or a shoot? The Hebrew word is netzer, and it refers to when you cut down a tree and what you have left is a stump, and the tree begins to grow back through shoots coming up from its roots. This is especially common in olive trees. Um, they tend to produce shoots from their roots. And when a shoot is healthy and successful, it can grow up from the roots and become a whole full tree. 
Um, we have, I think, at home an avocado tree that did that, and we wonder if that's why it's never produced any avocados. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so the promise of a shoot or a branch is a promise that even though the Davidic line looks like it's been nearly cut off, the people of Israel have been nearly destroyed, sent into exile. Many of them were massacred. They suffered so much. Yet, even from this appearingly dead stump, the Lord is able to bring a single shoot, a single branch that produces a whole tree, broader and grander even than the first tree, the tree into which all of us were grafted as Gentiles. And Jesus is that shoot, the offspring of Jesse. Um, he is referred to as the branch or shoot several times throughout the Old Testament. Um, in Isaiah 11.1, 1, Isaiah 4.2, Jeremiah 23, 5-6. Um, in fact, as I mentioned, the Hebrew word for shoot is netzer. Um, It's the same root as the current town of Nazareth, Netzeret, um, Nazareth. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus came from Nazareth specifically in order that he might be fulfill the prophecies by being called a Nazarene, a branch, a shoot, a netzer, um, <laughs> is the usual interpretation of that verse. There are a few others, but I'm going to focus on that one. Early disciples of Jesus were called Nazarenes because they followed the man from Nazareth. Um, and in fact, in modern day Hebrew, Christians are called Notzri and Notzrit. Coming from Nazareth, uh, we follow the man from Nazareth, the shoot, the branch of Jesse, of David. Um, uh, additionally, one last note from this passage. Um, Joshua, in this verse in chapter 6, is both a priest and a king, right? And he will be a priest on his throne. But that never happened in the Old Testament. Priests couldn't be kings and kings couldn't be priests. Kings had to be descendants of David. Zerubbabel was a descendant of David, and in fact, in the lineage of Jesus, Jesus is descended from Zerubbabel. Priests had to be descendants of Aaron, and the two could not be the same. There was not really a separation of church and state, but <laughs> a separation of the priesthood and the monarchy, at least. So why is Joshua treated like a prince in this passage in Zechariah? Well, because he is a symbol of the one yet to come, who is both a priest and a king, Jesus, our Moshiach. Um, here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. And finally, we see that the Lord removed the sin of this land in a single day, Zechariah 3.9, on that fateful day when Jesus on the cross atoned for sin once and for all in a single day. Uh, and Joshua is a fitting person to be chosen to represent him and foreshadow him, uh, given that his name is actually the same, Yehoshua, shortened to Yeshua, what we call Jesus in Hebrew, um, it means salvation or God saves. It's the same name also as Joshua in the book of Joshua, who led the conquest into the Holy Land. And each of these men, Joshua the high priest, as well as Joshua, uh, who led the war, the entry into the promised land, um, are types or symbols of Jesus. 
um, figures in the Old Testament that we can look back to to see a foreshadowing of Jesus and what he will do and be for us. He is our high priest. He builds the temple of the Lord, the church filled with his Holy Spirit. And like Joshua of the book of Joshua, um, he brings salvation, uh, deliverance uh, from our enemies and leads us into the promised land um, of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, there are many, many types of Jesus in the Old Testament, but today we're focusing just on Zechariah, which leads us to my final point, um, the presence of Jesus in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, which seem to be about Zerubbabel, specifically verse 7. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Uh, while this text refers to Zerubbabel, the Targum, uh, the paraphrase of the Old Testament that I mentioned before, identifies this as being about the Messiah, identifies Zerubbabel as a, a type and a foreshadowing of the Messiah in this passage and says it is the Messiah before whom mighty mountains will become level ground. It is the Messiah who will be empowered by the spirit of God, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And it is the work of the Messiah that will be impossible to stop. Um, and here's just a quote uh, to say exactly what I just said, <laughs> that according to the Targum, the interpretation of this vision was more about a descendant and prototype of Zerubbabel, the King Moshiach. Uh, this is written by an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, Mendel Dubov, but uh, though he may not know it, we can see that that descendant of Zerubbabel was Yeshua HaMashiach, uh, Jesus, our Messiah. Um, so to close, I hope we can be encouraged that our sins have been forgiven. We have a beautiful future hope in heaven and the Lord is present as we do his work here in this world. Um, and specifically he is present through his son, the Messiah, whom he predicted and foretold through the prophets who came in fulfillment of all the law and prophets in Old Testament, um, whose name we bear and whose temple we are. And with that, <laughs> I will open it up to discussion.